Take your Bibles to Malachi chapter number 3. Malachi chapter number 3 this evening. It's kind of funny. I referenced to that exact song this morning in Sunday school. So I thought that was unique. I kind of laughed a little bit when I heard the intro to it because I just think it's unique when God allows that to happen. The way I told my teenagers, I said, hey, uh, I remember this one song that used to be sung in church, and I guess it's still sung in church, so I'm excited to hear that. But uh, Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse number 1. Long ago, I got really nervous before I stood to preach. Uh, and I always heard preachers talk about, well, if you're not nervous, you're not right. Well, frankly, I, I don't get as nervous anymore. I, I've, I've preached about 600 times now, as, and I, I, I just... Maybe I'm wrong or something, but I, I don't get as nervous. I do, however, and especially on a night like tonight, get excited. I'm excited to preach to you tonight. I spent some time in prayer before the service tonight, and I just thank the Lord for the opportunity to stand and preach to you. What a privilege it is. I mean, there's many pastors that their whole ministry will preach in front of 20 or 30 people at the most, and I get the opportunity to preach to you. Now, Y'all got a long way to go, there ain't no doubt about it, but don't we all? I'm just excited to preach. And I tell you, this message tonight is motivated um, from a heart that has heard a lot of bad news over the last few weeks. And just a heart that is ready to hear some good news. And uh, I hope that maybe it will be a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me in my study, and I'm asking that the Lord will do something great. Malachi chapter number 3, verse number 1, the Bible says... Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, and the widow, and the fatherless, that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now I want you all to read with me verse number 6. Because this is a tremendous encouragement to me as a weary Christian in this world. So when I begin, I want you to read along with me out loud. Verse number 6, go ahead and begin. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Gracious Heavenly Father, we meet around your word tonight. Lord, needing you to meet with us. Lord, I am so humbled at the opportunity to stand and preach, but I realize that at this moment, I am not capable to do what needs to be done in this service. 
Lord, I've spent much time in preparation. I've spent time in prayer. And Lord, I'm asking that you would use me. But ultimately, I'm asking that you would remove me from this process. That your Holy Spirit would be the preacher tonight. And that as your word is lifted up, the Holy Spirit would speak to hearts, not me. Father, I'm asking that you would do something great in our presence to encourage Christians who may need encouragement. And I ask, Lord, this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the book of Malachi was written to the sons of Judah. In other words, it was written to the nation of Israel. So before we get too deep in our study tonight, you must realize this book was not directly written to you as a Gentile. However, I do believe it is applicable to us as the New Testament church. It's applicable to us as the children of God. And it's applicable to us just as people wanting to know God's will for our life. So it's very applicable. But being written to the children of Israel, and specifically the tribe of Judah, that is an amazing thing when you begin to think about what's being said. I mean... Uh, think of who we're speaking about tonight. I mean, do you remember what God did through the nation of Israel? I mean, even looking back, back when it first began, if there was one man who could be the father of a nation, I think Abraham is a pretty good guy to have as the father of a nation. A man of faith, a man who the book of Hebrews holds in the highest regards when it comes to his willingness to follow God wholeheartedly. That's an amazing thing. But going on, as Israel progresses, yeah, absolutely, they had their down times and they had their shortcomings. But even when they did ask for a king, God gave them some of the greatest kings to ever walk the face of this earth. I'm reminded of Saul, and we have a bad taste in our mouth when it comes to Saul, but Saul was a great man before he was a bad man. Saul was a humble man. Saul was a, a, a man of God, and, and God used Saul in a mighty way, and unfortunately Saul uh, kind of fell a little bit, and God established not Saul's throne through Jonathan, but He established the uh, throne of David. Well, speaking of David, what an amazing king, right? And I'm not even talking about the king of David yet. I'm just talking about the little shepherd boy David. How many of us would have liked to have been there and seen that battle go down with just one little shepherd boy finding uh, the greatest champion of the enemy rival nation? There's this little lad facing this giant giant. Yes, those are uh, work together. Don't judge me too much on that. And there this battle ensues and all of Israel's worried about the outcome and all of Philistia's excited about the outcome because whoever wins is going to be a master over the other nation. And there David that day slew Goliath and Israel chased Philistia out of the valley. What an amazing story. And then David, a man after God's own heart, was such a great king. Oh, certainly David had his uh, downfall. David had his shortcomings. Yeah, yeah, we all know about Bathsheba. Yeah, we all know about when he numbered the nation of Israel against God's will. But how about the times when David did enough to get right with God? That's an admirable feature in a man. Sure, David made his mistakes, but how many of you remember when he goes to Ornan's threshing floor and he himself uh, convinces Ornan and Ornan sacrificially gives to the Lord and he stops the plague there that day and, and God is merciful. How many of you remember in Psalm chapter 51 when David prays the sweetest repentance prayer in all of the Bible? David was an amazing man. And it, that's the nation this is written to. 
Later on, you, 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 you hear about uh, uh, God working in the nation of Israel. And I, I recall one of the greatest conquests in all the Bible when God allowed the nation of Israel to defeat the superpower of the day in Egypt. How many of you remember back in Exodus when, when uh, Egypt took Israel in bondage because God continued to bless Israel? And he, blessing after blessing, and, and they kept growing, and they kept getting stronger. And Pharaoh grew intimidated by this little slave nation, and he incarcerates them and makes him do what he wants them to do. But then God raises up Moses out of nowhere, as you read your Bible, I might add, raises up Moses, and he is used as the deliverer of Israel by God. And there on the border of the Red Sea... This amazing picture of the Old Testament ensues. There they are. They're trapped in geographically. If you do a little bit of a study, you realize there was no going to the right. There was no going to the left. And Pharaoh's army was coming the way that Israel came. There was no way except God's way. And there on the border of the Red Sea, all of them questioned Moses. Moses, you brought us out here to die. There were not enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us all the way out here. Moses, what were you thinking? Moses, I just, I won't. Moses, Moses. And, and Moses stands up and says, how about you just be quiet a little bit? He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, but then Moses passes off the scene and God raises up a young man by the name of Joshua. And there Joshua fits the battle of Jericho, if you will. Just this nation, now they're starting to get some growth. Now they're starting to get a little momentum. Man, they've seen some victories. And now God allows them to go into the promised land. And the first place they come to is Jericho. The city was built not for offense, but solely for defense. It said that you could race 12 chariots side by side on the walls. Now, I don't know how biblically accurate that is. Sometimes I think commentaries just make stuff up. But uh, uh, it was a giant wall nonetheless. As I've done a study on it, I do know that it was more than one wall. It was one, like a giant retaining wall, and then another wall. So that's what made it so intimidating to everybody. And everybody looks at Joshua, well, now what do we do? You brought us all the way here. And Joshua says, oh, let me go get God's opinion on it. And, and God gives him probably the strangest battle strategy that's ever been implemented, right? Well, here's what you need you to do, Joshua. I need you to get some horns. And uh, I need you to shut up the loudest mouth people in the whole wide world. I need you to make them be quiet every day you walk around the city. They can't say a word, Joshua. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some uh, uh, ram's horns, and we're going we're, we're to take uh, uh, the priest. We're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it's going to be wonderful. And everybody's thinking, we don't have a sword. We don't have a spear. We don't have nothing. We're going at them with ram's horns and clay pots. What's going on? And there they are. Amazing story breaks out. And on the seventh day, we know the story, how they, they walked around the wall there, 13 times. It's just an amazing picture in the Bible. And there, uh, Joshua says, okay, everybody, now it's time to get your talking out. Just go ahead and shout. And the, 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 the priests blow the horns and, and the walls come crashing down. It is amazing what God did through the nation of Israel in the Bible. The favor that he showed to them. It's amazing. But unfortunately, in our passage tonight, 
we are a long way removed from those days. I mean, we're a long way gone from there. Israel has been in bondage many, many times since then. Israel has been constantly punished and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, judged by God because of their lack of obedience towards Him. There's a lot of change that's happened from Exodus and First and Second Samuel to where we are in Malachi. You know, when I think of that in Israel's history, I think of the parallel between their history and our history as a nation. I don't think there would be a person in here that would not say God's hand was on our nation at its foundation. Think of the men that were there to do God's work back when a country was started. I mean, little America with farmers and pitchforks and just minimal uh, 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 artillery was able to defeat uh, uh, the, the superpower of the day there and we were able to gain our independence and freedom? You tell me how that makes sense. It, it almost sounds like Jericho, or it almost sounds like uh, Egypt, to be honest with you, how just little old us was able to defeat uh, 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 Great Britain and England there, and it was just an amazing thing. God's hand was on our nation and its foundation. Uh, the men like George Washington, who said things like, it is impossible to rightly govern uh, without the Bible. And whether history books want to take it out of our history, uh, those men stood for God. And as much as they want to take it out of our history books, it oozes off of every page in our Constitution and every document that those men signed. Men were to have a, a, a freedom of worship, freedom of religion. Everything that they said was, was somehow pointed to some Bible concept and some thought how our nation was to be a subject to God as its higher power. But we're a long way from those days. The past few weeks have been devastating, to say the least. It's devastating in so many different ways, but it's devastating because our government does not have our country at heart. Each man is in the race not for our country's uh, 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 promotion or benefit. They're in the race for their own benefit. And I don't care who you're voting for. They're all selfish. They tell lies. They, they sm uh, smear the other person's name in an attempt to, to, to push them down while raising themselves up. It's disturbing to me. We've come a long way. I think just recently how we've had all these shootings and and, and frankly, I don't care to hear your opinion on it, and I won't give you my opinion on it, but let's just say it's not right for innocent men to die. In whatever setting, in, in whatever scenario, God has never been pleased with the taking of a life because that life cost God something. We've just, we, we've just strayed so far. And while Malachi was not written to us, I do believe there are a lot of similarities to where Israel had been and where they were. And the only, the only concept 
The only thing that gets me out of bed, the only thing that uh, gives me some encouragement in my spirit is this. My God is unchanging. Our world is changing constantly. Man, I've never felt ashamed for being a righteous man until recently. I've never been ashamed. It's like the news comes on and I'm ashamed for my beliefs. No, that's... I believe what the Bible believes, and it's some news reporter telling me that I ought to be ashamed of the way I believe. No, our world is changing rapidly. I am deathly afraid of what our teenagers are going to have to face in the future. If I plan on pastoring this church for 30, 40, 50 years, I'm deathly afraid of what the government's going to say about me actually preaching what the Bible says someday. I'm afraid that I'm going to be stuck in a cell by some inmate who molested a child and there I am for preaching the gospel and they consider me the same because we both committed hate crimes. I'm afraid of the direction we're heading as a nation. But my God is unchanging. Though nations, though politicians, though things, though uh, culture, though society, though uh, all these things, they are constantly changing and changing for the worst, I might add. My God is unchanging. Tonight I want to speak to you about this. An unchanging God in an ever-changing world. I want to show you three ways that God is unchanging. First of all, He is unchanging Uh, in his rectifying entrance. Man, if you look at where Israel is at this current moment, it is a very sad story. Look in verse number uh, 2 of chapter number 1. In Malachi, I want to show you kind of the progression as to where we are now in our passage. Malachi wrote his book in a very... uh, interrogative way. In other words, he would ask a question or he would make a statement and then he would suppose the question that was to be asked and he would then answer that question. And I'll give you an example of that in verse number 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. There's his statement. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau and Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. In other words, these people, uh, after the statement of, I have loved you, saith the Lord, they said, prove it. Prove your love to us. I mean, what have you done for us lately? This is Israel we're talking about here. This is the people that have had God's hand. They celebrate things like the Passover when God miraculously killed all the firstborn of Egypt and they spared the firstborn of the children of Israel. God has always loved them. God has always favored them. God has always cared for them. And now God says, I love you. And here's what they say. Do you? Do you love us? Secondly, look in verse number 6 of chapter number 1. The Bible says this. A son... uh, 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 honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? O priest that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. 
And you say, Where ha- wherein have we polluted thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And verse number 8, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? See, not only did the people question his love, but his priests were giving polluted offerings. The people, instead of giving God the first fruits of their labor, like he had asked for and like he had commanded, the people were giving what they had left over. Right? Later on in this chapter, I think in verse number 13, you can look if you want, the Bible tells us that God says that these people were giving the blind animals, the deaf animals, the weak animals, the torn garments, the, the, the corrupted seed. They would come and offer these things out of obligation, but there was no genuine love behind it because they were giving their second, third, and fourth best to God. Kind of sounds like America, doesn't it? We pollute offerings all the time. Well, God, I'll give you this, I'll do this, but there's no way I'm going to go that far. What if God asked you to give some inordinate amount of money? What if God asked you to give an inordinate amount of time? You say, Brother Andrew, I'd never spend a, 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 a full Saturday visiting little bus kids, and I would never do that in 110 degrees. You know what you're doing? You're giving him your second best. You're giving him spoiled offerings is what you're giving him. America's... We're very similar to these people. Not only did the people question his love, the priest polluted his offerings. Look, his pulpits diluted the message. Look in chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Bible tells us who it's speaking up to now. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. Skip down to verse number 5. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I, I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. That talks about a man of God or a priest who was right with God, and that's the relationship God wanted to have with his priest. The Bible says in verse number 6, The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at, at, at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Look at verse number 8. But ye are departed out of the way. Look, this is the, the way that I prescribe for my priest, but you're departed out of that way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, said the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. In other words, what was happening here is there's a whole bunch of preachers only preaching what they wanted to preach. They were partial in the law. They wanted to give, I guess, a friendly message and not the whole message. Well, it sounds pretty similar to our day and age, doesn't it? There are entire denominations built upon this thought that come as you are and we'll speak about the good things of of the Bible and we won't mention too much of the other stuff. My friend, we, like Israel, have lost our way. His pulpits diluted the message. Fourthly, his priorities had been forsaken. Chapter number 2, verse 11. The Bible said, Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So 
they were marrying outside of the nation of Israel. And this is not the first time this has happened. However, this is the first time that this has happened. Skip down to verse number 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, now notice that, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not, make he, uh, did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Look, what was happening is, not only were they taking women from outside the nation of Israel, that was not a new concept. The new concept was, they were leaving the wife of their youth, and they were divorcing the right woman to go marry the wrong woman. That's why it says you have dealt treacherously with the wife of thy youth. They were leaving God's will to seek their own will. And the marriage and the home that God has established was being eroded by wicked men. Sounds pretty similar to today, doesn't it? Hey, divorce ought, be, ought not be a word that's ever mentioned in your home. I hope your kid's a teenager one day sitting around the table and somebody at lunch says, yeah, my parents got a divorce, and your kid has to say, well, what's that? I hope you never have to explain to your child what divorce is. I hope that your home, whether you love her, whether you don't love her, man, what I've noticed is love is a pretty fleeting emotion sometimes. Boy, sometimes you feel like you love them, sometimes you feel like you want to strangle them. It's all pretty similar, and there's a very fine line you walk. Look, I, I hope that we as a church family value the home. With all the world attacking one man and one woman, we have trouble keeping one man and one woman together. There's enough people attacking our home. We don't need to be eroding God's priorities. Fifthly, this is where they were. They were questioning His propensity. His propensity was being contested. Look in verse number 17. I'll explain that to you. The Bible says, and this is so sad. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? It's the question that's being posed like this. God, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked look like they're having a good old time? And what they were doing is they were questioning God's prerogatives. Look, it's God's plan for your life. And if that life is to be lived in poverty, so be it if it's God's plan. But they were saying, God, I just can't believe I look around and all these wicked people, they just are successful. They're, they're, it's like you're blessing them. And then here we are. We're in bondage. We're struggling. We can't even go to church. And, 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 and life is hard on us. And everybody else is having a grand old time. With the stuff that Malachi has thrown their way, with all of the stuff that's going on in Israel, do you think they are righteous enough to look around and say, oh, the righteous suffer? Oh, they have a false idea of themselves. Amen. They're saying, oh, we, we're just struggling along. We're just trying to work for God. No, you, you're, you're trying to act like you're working for God. There's not a righteous man among you. 
America is in the place where we pretend Christianity. Christianity began with sacrifice and is continued in sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made you a Christian, and it is your sacrifice that He asks for. Oh, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which, is, uh, which is, uh, has purchased you? Uh, you see, we were bought with a price, the Bible says, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus that begs the sacrifice of us. That was Christianity, and that was discipleship. But here we are, sitting on our stool. Oh God, I look around and and there's so much wickedness. What we need to do is take an introspective look at ourselves. We need to ask God like the psalmist, Lord, try me. I'm tired of putting everybody else on trial. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And I love this in verse number one of our chapter. One way that God is unchanging is in His rectifying entrance. The Bible says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of His coming, and who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. I want to draw your attention to two phrases here. First of all, behold, I will send my messenger. Who's that referring to? Well, it's referring to John the Baptist. See, the messenger was the one that would lay the ground for Jesus Christ. He would make straight the ways. He would prepare the way. And in every single gospel, John the Baptist is found proclaiming the way. And it even refers to this passage and other passages about John the Baptist of the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In every single gospel, it's mentioned. Now I want to draw your attention to the second uh, phrase there. I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Now who's that speaking of? That's speaking of Jesus Christ. However, here is one common misconception of this particular text. It's not speaking of the covenant of Jesus' blood. It is not speaking of the first time Jesus would come. This is speaking of His second coming. You say, Brother Andrew, how do you know that? Well, read verse 2. It talks about how Jesus would have to judge, and and people would come, and they would have to kneel. and, And it's speaking specifically of Jesus' reign on earth. Now let me ask you, did Jesus' first coming look much like a reign of a king? Uh, He came and he was received, not even of his own. The Bible says uh, they rejected him. The Bible says uh, light came, and this is the condemnation, that light come into the world, and men love darkness rather than they love light because their deeds were evil continually. When Christ came, He was not accepted by those around Him. Yea, He was rejected by them. So how in verse number 2 is everybody getting along with Jesus so great? Look in verse number 2. Let's read this. The Bible says, But who may abide the day of His coming, and who shall stand when He appeareth? For He is like a refiner's fire and and like fuller's soap. He is supreme in verse number 2. He was not supreme when He came to this earth. As Savior. The first time He came, He did not come to render judgment. He came to render justification. 
He came as Savior, not Sovereign. He did not come to establish a righteous government, but to make grace readily available. So when it speaks of uh, uh, the messenger of the covenant, it's referring back to the covenant given in Leviticus chapter number 26. And that covenant is that one day Israel would walk with God. They would walk hand in hand with God. He would be like their God and they would be His people. Now let me ask you, could God come to this earth and walk hand in hand with anybody right now? Absolutely not. What the Bible is saying here is, one day Jesus would come again. No, it's not talking about the first coming. This is talking about the second coming. And, and let me just say this. Don't mistake the rapture for the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus is when He comes in power and glory. Not when He uh, is on a cloud in the sky calling us to be gone. That's not the second coming. The second coming is when He will not lo no longer be known as Savior. He will be known as Sovereign. The second coming is not when He is to be killed, but when He will be King. The second coming is when Jesus on a pale horse comes. When Jesus, uh, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. John chapter 1, the Bible tells us who that is. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he that treaded the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of God Almighty. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, and that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is when Jesus will come again. And I want you to know today, Christian, sometimes we look around and we say, when is Jesus coming back? I don't know if He's ever going to come back. Oh, I can promise you He's coming back. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. And the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven uh, with power and great glory. And He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. Philippians tells us a little bit what this will look like. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord of lords. That is the certainty that our Lord promises us. And I don't care how bad it gets, and I don't care who kills who. I'm looking today not for the, for the wickedness of this earth. I'm looking at Jesus knowing that one thing that has never changed and never will change is one day He's coming back for me. There's an absolute certainty in the Bible that He promised to come back. Man, sometimes we begin to look around and we just look at all the wrongdoing and we forget there is a righteous God who has it all under control. There will be a rectifying entrance. Secondly, one thing that's about God that will never change is uh, He has a righteous eradication when He comes. A righteous eradication. Look at this. The Bible says in the second part of verse number 2, For he is like a refiner's fire. 
and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Look, I think God sometimes is so tired of our offerings of money. And he looks around and says, how about somebody just offer an offering of obedience? How about somebody just offer an offering of righteousness? God doesn't need your money. He has that. He has all the money he wants. What he needs is men and women to sell out to him. That is the offering that he asks for. Even back when Saul committed uh, 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 against the Lord, how he took things that he was not supposed to take, and he did, uh, did not destroy all that was there. And, 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 and there the prophet comes up to him and says, Look, wouldn't it have just been better for you to not offer these wicked things to God? Wouldn't he have just preferred an offering of obedience? For to obey is better than to uh, uh, sacrifice, he says. Sometimes I wonder if God doesn't look down and his stomach just gets queasy at the wickedness that is in our world and in our church. Don't think these walls wash you off when you come in here. Man, it is a shame that I cannot have social media because I get depressed about what I see on there. It is a shame that church members would would be so fickle and so nonchalant about their Christianity that not only are they not ashamed of the things they do, but they readily post it for the world to see. Somebody has to realize that our Savior said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Somebody's got to understand, God still expects righteous children. That's what He asks for and that's what He expects. But when He comes... He'll do it all himself. When he comes, the Bible says he'll be like fuller's soap, like a refiner's fire. Now most of us know what a refiner's fire is. See, gold or silver is just a rock or a mineral before it hits the refiner's fire. And it's only at that point when it becomes valuable and useful. Fuller soap, uh, when the, the person there that was shearing the sheep would take the wool off the sheep, uh, it still had the sheep stench to it. It still had the mud that the sheep was in the day before. It still had all the nasty that the sheep was. You ever seen a sheep that was kind of yellowish? That's not because the wool's yellow. That's because the sheep's been hanging out in nasty places. And fuller soap was what they used to sit out there and rub and clean that wool so that that wool would one day become useful to the garment maker. You understand, when Jesus comes, not only is He going to have a rectifying entrance, He is going to have a righteous eradication. And all of those people that look at God and say, yeah, I don't believe in you, and all those people that are willing to do whatever they want, all those people, God's going to look at them and say, you bow to me, son. That's a righteous eradication. When God comes back, this world's not going to be wicked anymore. When God comes back, when Jesus Christ comes as King of glory, this world isn't going to have the freedom to go down to the 7-Eleven and, 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 or the Piggly Wiggly and steal some money. That's not the way it's going to work when He's King and Ruler. There'll be no question about the death penalty when Christ is Ruler. There'll be no debates. How many of you love watching the presidential debates? There's a lot of real good intellectual stuff happens there, I'm sure. There will be no debates. 
There'll be no questions. There'll be no prisons needed because when my king is king, there'll be a righteous eradication of all that is wicked. And I tell you, I'm ready to stop seeing wicked. I'm ready to not have to worry about what my children will have to see when they grow up. And I'm ready for Jesus to come back, if I just be very honest with you. But here's what we Christians do. We compartmentalize His return. We put it in the back of our mind and keep it there so that it's not at the forefront of our mind. We act as if we can do whatever we want and one day maybe potentially it will happen, maybe not, not of my lifetime, uh, later on in someone else's lifetime. And we act like we are the king of when he comes back and what it's going to be like when he gets back. My daughter has do, started doing this thing. It's really cute. She will do something wrong, and maybe me and Amy will be out of the room. And this is what she does. She comes into where we're at. This morning I was brushing my teeth. And she says, don't spank me, Daddy. Don't spank me, Daddy. Don't spank me. And I go, why would I spank you? Did you do something? Don't spank me, Daddy. Don't spank me, Daddy. Don't spank me. I say, why? What, what happened? Well, this morning, the answer was, I hit Bailey. <laughs> Look, Caitlin knows something, that Daddy will be just in his punishment. When she does something wrong, I have to make it right. What a lot of Christians in this room need to do tonight yeah, come is come to an altar and bow a knee before their God and say, don't spank me. Lord, I want to be righteous, not because one day you're going to make this world righteous. I want to be righteous because that's what you deserve from me. A righteous eradication. I'm so excited for Jesus to come back and to clean it up like a fuller soap and like a refiner's fire. Some of us think that, oh, maybe, we, maybe it'll just get passed over. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Proverbs 20, 11, 21 says, Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of righteous shall be delivered. There is an absolute certainty that not only is Jesus coming back, but that when He comes back, it will be a reign of righteousness. And those are two things that will never change. Finally, one thing that will never change about our God, He has not changed in His restrained enactment. Notice in verse number 6, not the part in verse number 6 that draws your attention or draws your eye, but notice this. The Bible says in Malachi 3 verse 6, For I am the Lord and I change not. That is good. That is really good, but notice the second part of the verse. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Times we're at an all-time low in the book of Malachi. For the nation of Israel, what's going to happen is, after the book, do you, my book here, my Bible says, the end of the prophets. I don't know what your Bible says, but mine has a blank page here. I don't know if you can see that. You know what that blank page represents? Silence. No word from God. These are the, the, the silent years, the dead years. 
This is the time when God doesn't speak through prophets, doesn't speak through revelation, God doesn't give any new word. All they have is what Malachi wrote them. Times are at an all-time low. And I have to think that as God says, man, I'm not happy with the way everything's gone. My, my preachers, they're weak. Uh, we're, my offerings, they're, they're being uh, polluted. Look at all that's going wrong in the land. You're, you're, you're taking away my priorities. You're degrading the home. I, I'm just so distraught with everything that's going on. But verse number 6, I am the Lord and I change not. And he says, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. As bad as it was in Judah at this time, God says, the one thing that I will never change is my grace. That's good. The Bible says, notice this in Lamentations 3, verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Uh, And because His compassions they fail not, They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know what God is saying here in Malachi chapter 6, or or Malachi chapter 3, verse number 6? He's saying, times are bad and everything looks rough. And man, I'm telling you, just there's people that are wicked and they're my children and my preachers aren't preaching and my my, uh, uh, children aren't living for me. Everything is an all-time low. Now I'm about to shut off the valve of my communication to the world and and you're just going to have to live with what you have and no new revelation. For until my son comes, there's going to be a really dark time in history. And then he says, but as bad as things are, My mercies are new every morning. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends up into heaven. There all these people are looking up into heaven. And then an angel appears to them and says, You mean the Galilee? Why stand ye gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus which has gone up from you will so come in like manner. In other words, what he was saying is, What are you waiting for? Now is the time to put into action what he said to do. Jesus said, the time cometh when no man can work. He says, I work in the daytime, but the nighttime cometh. The day cometh when no man can work. Jesus understood this one principle, that one day he would come as judge, not as the justifier. One day he would come as sovereign, not as savior. One day he would come as the king, not as the one to be killed. That was what Jesus was saying. There comes a day when I will have to return to this world and judge every man according to their works. So until that time comes, spread the news about my wonderful saving grace. Spread the news of my mercy. Man, if you mess up, get back on the horse and keep riding man if you screw up christian you just keep living for me and my mercy is new every morning live for me not because there's so much wicked going on live for me because i am who i am and i will never change and i will never forsake you and i will never neglect you i am your god and i am merciful and gracious to you does it get any better than that Man, I'm all about back, back in the blue. I got a credit card that says it. I'm all about all lives matter, and I am very much for black lives matter. I am all for all of the, the stuff going on in our culture, but you know what I'm more for? 
the fact that all of it is irrelevant is we as Christians don't stop gazing. There we are looking up into heaven. What are we waiting for? Sure, we're supposed to keep one eye on the sky, but we're just kind of sitting there looking up to the sky like something's going to happen. No, Jesus says there's only a short time to work. There's only a short time to serve. You think Jesus is looking forward to the day when he has to send men to hell? After everything he did on Calvary, you think he's looking forward to the day when he has to be judged? No. Friend, we only have a limited time on this earth. And who knows it can be shorter than you even expect it to be. Because it could be tonight, and you say, Brother Andrew, preachers for centuries have been saying that. Yeah, one of them's going to be right one day. We think, oh, well, we have tomorrow. You don't know what you have. What is man's life but a vapor? Look, we only have a limited number of days, and those days could be even shorter than you realize. What are you going to do about it? Sure, we could, we could all vote. I even thought the other day, has there ever been a preacher mayor? I was passing the mayor's house there in Joshua. I said, huh, maybe you run for mayor. Maybe you could do something that way. And I thought, what a stupid thought. The only difference that I will ever make in this world is spreading the news that my God never changes and that He is a merciful God. Oh, sure, we could write our senators... Sure, we could pray for our nation. I think that's a biblical thing to do. But Jesus said, there are three things that I will never change. I will never change the fact that I am coming back. I will never change the fact that when I come back, it will be a righteous reign. But I will never change the fact that I am putting it off as long as I can so that you can do something about it. Look, I I don't know what the message tonight is encouraging you to do. I'll tell you what it encouraged me to do. Tell some more people about Him. It encouraged me to live for Him even though sometimes I don't feel qualified or worthy to do so. It encouraged me to remember who my God is in light of all that's going on here. And I just recall verses like, Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. There is nothing that happens on this earth that my God is not aware of and that my God is not in control of. And as bad as things get, no matter who gets elected this coming year, I know one thing, my God will still be their God. Whether or not they admit it. I'm just here today in the midst of an ever-changing world to tell you about my God who never changes.